Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. With close to three decades in the nonprofit, political, and media sectors, Sam LaPrade is a singular voice in the world of social good. From her work as strategist at Griffin Fundraising to her role as host of An Hour to Give in Ottawa, and from the fundraising stages around the world to the stand-up stage, she's provided a unique insight into the art and science of 21st century fundraising. We caught up with her at her home in Ottawa for this interview. Welcome to the program, Sam. Thanks so much for making time to talk. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jay. What a great opportunity today is to uh, to connect with you again. Absolutely. Um, and I know you have a puppy in the background, so hopefully we'll have a couple of voices here in the program today. Um, but if not, we'll just imagine what it's like to uh, to go and adopt a puppy in the middle of a pandemic. Um, what what inspired you to go and, and get uh, get a new member of your household? Well, I'll tell you is that she, um, you know, she's always been wanted, uh, but I think the pandemic uh, has definitely uh, made a lot of people think about uh, their own, um, you know, their own households and who they wanted to invite into their their homes. So we invited Beasley in. And I think a big part of it for me um, was that she, um, you know, was a Labradoodle. So she's going to fit our, our household. But as you know, Jay, I'm on the road a lot normally. And of course, during this pandemic, I've been at home. So it seemed like the right time to uh to welcome our little furry friend in into our house <laughs> um and you chose the name beasley and i trust that that's not being used as a password so perhaps you can tell us uh yeah. where you came up with the name beasley absolutely so beasley is the last name of one of our favorite characters from the show the office and that's pam beasley who is the mm-hmm. receptionist and uh we just loved her so much and we didn't think she suited pam so beasley just fit her perfectly so the office is popular in your house too. Yes, it's a, it's been a so. big big thing here, especially for my son. I think he's seen the, all of it two or three times. What's right. what's so appealing about the program to you? Um, I think it's just uh, you know I've worked in an office, so there's some of that that kind of makes st- stuff funny for me. But the character development is really great uh, in that show, and uh, yeah, I just think it's really smart writing, and uh, and you sort of we kind of joke that that the characters are kind of like family, like we refer to them, like oh you know remember when Stanley said or remember when Jim said, and uh, <laughs> so we kind of uh, kind of joke that uh, that it's our own little. Uh, our subgroup of, of uh, friends that are part of the office. So they kind of get into your, into your mind and you can't get rid of them. <laughs> so have you ever worked in an office that's remotely like that? Oh, uh, yes. I've actually had a boss like Michael Scott. And really? so part of it is when I first started watching it, I was kind of a bit gobsmacked that there actually, you know, was a show like that. Um, but I found a bit of comedic, comedic relief after what, you know, I went through working for someone like that. So, yeah, so I have worked for an office in an office setting and, and for someone like them, one of the main characters. But, um, yeah, it's been uh, kind of some of the funny stuff about silly things like the birthday parties and, you know, all of that kind of silly stuff that happens in an office and office politics and office supplies and all that kind of funny stuff uh, always resonates with me as well. 
Yeah, there's a lot of drama in the mundane. And there's okay. and it also is a show that uh, despite the obvious flaws in many of the characters, there's a lot of humanity in them. They're sympathetic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's actually a lot of references uh, in the office to charity, which mm -hmm. I always get such a chuckle over. Um, you know, there was a there was a fun run and uh, different uh, charity initiatives. So I always uh, kind of chuckle from a fundraising perspective about that as well. Now, I, I did think that there'd be a connection between the office and some of the work you do, but I, I'm not sure exactly how to thread that needle. But I do think that there is a storytelling element to uh, the office and I guess to all all programming, but particularly a show like that that's character driven that must inform or at least resonate with you because uh, you do so much work in the area of storytelling. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about the role of storytelling in your work? You know what, I'll tell you, I probably did the first 10 years of fundraising uh, without storytelling. I didn't really sort of see that side of it. Um, but as I, you know, got to know more, um, I mean, this goes back a long time, I never sort of saw it as storytelling. And the minute that was sort of introduced to me, I realized that that was um, such an important piece, uh, you know, of what we do. So yeah, storytelling, I, I storytell a lot through data. I also storytell, of course, through appeals. And then, uh, of course, through my radio show, I host a radio show every week uh, here in Canada. And it's a show that focuses on philanthropy, community and volunteerism. So a lot of that uh, is sharing the stories of impact. Uh, I love talking to to people and why they got into fundraising. You know, so many people sort of uh, fall into this sector. We don't sort of go to school for it. But part of that um, is is all about storytelling. And, and really, when you can show the power of one, uh, you can inspire thousands. You're also giving space for people to tell their stories, which is so important. So your your show, you're you're talking about an hour to give. Is that right? Absolutely. Can you talk a bit about that show, what the genesis of that was and, and what you're trying to do in giving space for people to talk about their work? For sure. An Hour to Give uh, was really uh, an idea that I had a, over a decade ago, and it was an opportunity that I was given to sort of talk an hour about a homeless shelter that I was working at. And I realized very quickly that that was a show. It took me a decade to make it happen, if not more. Um, and, and it basically started in February of 2018. And, uh, you know, it's been going strong ever since. And it really is an opportunity for nonprofits to have that full hour to share their stories to your point, but also um, how people can jump aboard their, their train and become part of uh, the movement that, that they have. So it's been, it's been varying. There've been everything from, you know, children's hospitals to smaller organizations, smaller food banks. Um, I've had really unique charities on recently. I profiled something called under the surface, which is scuba diving uh, to help with PTSD for veterans and first responders. Mm -hmm. So it's really, been uh as varied as 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 this country and and as the world is in terms of philanthropy so it's really been a, a great opportunity to connect uh you know people uh with this and i think you know ironically during this time we're all in right now it really is an opportunity um for us to hear some good news and so often uh that was missing and i think i think the show has actually become more important 
um, during the pandemic than it was before the pandemic. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting journey with that show. I started my career in broadcasting. I was a radio host for a rock radio station here in Canada called 54 Rock. And mm-hmm. I, so I always knew I loved radio. I loved the medium. I love talk radio. So it kind of lent itself to a proposal to a, a local radio station here in Ottawa called 1310 News. And today we're just about three years in and uh, it's become appointment listening for a lot of our listeners, which is always great too. How do you select the organizations that you bring on board? Are they coming to you or are you going to them and typically typically they come to us it is something they receive a lot sort of for coming on the show they get a certain amount of commercials they get lots of different things so that's all kind of worked out to uh with the radio station i uh, host the show but but most times i would say probably 75 percent of times they're coming to us the odd time we'll be working with somebody like this past week um, I interviewed somebody from RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada, and they ended up um, uh, being on the show because uh, they wanted to to use this time to show from a corporate partner perspective that they were still on board even through a pandemic. So, um, yeah, so it's been really interesting from that perspective just to see the variety of people that are involved. Are there any kinds of organizations that you're particularly drawn toward where it's it's a lot of fun for you to have the conversation and dig deep into what motivates them? Yeah, a lot of it for me, um, not that it's sort of a, from a fun perspective, but more from a from an impact perspective. Mental health has always been uh, top of mind for me. Um, I, I love sort of showing, especially here in Canada, a lot of people don't think about Canada as, uh, you know, a place that has got um, world care, uh, world class, I should say, uh, world class health care, but we do. So every time I get docs, I love having doctors in uh, the studio, especially when we can have them in the studio. A lot of times I, of course, now I do my interviews over the, over the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we can have doctors in the studio, I love asking them uh, just different questions questions that they've never been asked before. So, um, you know, doctors tend to speak very technically, um, but I like to bring out the emotional side. And one of my favorite questions to ask a doctor is to take me back to the day that they found out that they were accepted into medical school. And you just find their whole demeanor changes, right? It's, it's really great. So that I really enjoy for sure. Well, you kind of anticipated my question, which is which kinds of questions are the, are the kind that you like to ask? And that's, I can see why that question of a doctor would be very emotional. Uh, what other kinds of things do you like to ask people to draw them out and help them to to talk about something that's meaningful? Yeah, it's really interesting. I do like asking those emotional questions, of course, um, because that's where you sort of get to the germ of why people do what they do. Um, a big one, when I get a chance to speak with someone that's been impacted by, let's say, cancer or kidney uh, disease or something that's really changed their whole lives, you know, I'll always say to them, you know, the day before you were diagnosed, tell me about that day and tell me about the day after you were diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Um, So people really, you know, are very candid. Typically people that are going to be interviewed like that, you know, want to share their story. They're open to that kind of thing. So, um, you know, so that's really powerful when, when somebody will do that. Recently, I asked uh, a wife, I was interviewing a couple, and I asked her, you know, what it was like when her husband told her that he had prostate cancer. And she said, you know, I just, I pretended I didn't hear what he said. 
I, I just, I couldn't process it. So it's really interesting to see what human nature does when, when we're put into um, some of the, sometimes the most tragic situations of our lives. And that's as a, as a broadcaster where the form is understood. You, you bring people to be interviewed, you interview them. They are prepared at some level to tell a story. You just bring out that story in, in fundraising. Of course, we often use questions also to help people to get to that place where they're making a decision on a, on a real and authentic level. What are the similarities and differences between the kinds of things you, you pose as questions in that environment and those you pose as a fundraiser? You know, they're very similar. And I think that's what's kind of been the intersect for me for fundraising and broadcasting is that it's been an opportunity to sort of, you know, use my broadcasting experience and my fundraising and vice versa. So I think it's been, you know, the questions are very similar. I love, like recently I interviewed um, a little guy, uh, his name is Ollie, and he was diagnosed uh, with a very serious form of cancer. And him talking about how, because of his cancer, he's gone blind now, and how he plays a video game um, and how he plays that because of vibrations on this particular gaming machine was I literally could like I I literally got choked up I couldn't even speak and he took the floor like he just he he didn't know I was so emotional and he just kept talking about this game and we had so many people reach out to us after that interview because they could tell I was really emotional but this little guy just kept talking about what was so important to him and it was one of those moments where you know you really realize a kid with cancer is still a kid and so he was just right into his game. And meanwhile, I was, you know, just really welling up because he was just so raw in his answers. And um, his mom wrote to me afterwards and said, oh, I should have told you he's a real chatterbox. And I wrote back and said, I'm so grateful he was a chatterbox um, because he just took the floor. And um, and that's when people, um, you know, really, really get to hear what someone's about when when they get to hear their own words. I always tell people that I interview, I always say to them, listen, I'm the wallpaper, you're the main event. Um, and I always find that kind of, you know, they always kind of chuckle at that. But um, but I find for me anyway, that's what's been important for me is just to make sure people get the, you know, get the space, like you'd said earlier, to sort of share their story. I used to prepare, oh my gosh, I used to prepare like 30 questions and and my producer one day, this was a long time ago, my producer said to me, you know, why don't you just try just not sort of preparing very many questions? And I was like, what? And I got to tell you, that changed my whole way that I work now. I, I don't prepare a lot of questions. I, I know what I'm talking about. I'll have sort of guidelines, but I let the person guide the questions. Right. You're not extracting information. You're <laughs> giving them a chance to tell a story. It's exactly. entirely different. Yeah. Um, where does that come from for you? Do you remember when you were young having that kind of dialogue at home? Was that the way it was with you and your parents? What? You know what? what I think it's the opposite, actually. I don't think we were like that. I don't, we didn't really talk a lot about stuff like that. And I, I was always drawn to talk radio. Like that was always a big thing for me. Like they used to laugh at me. Like I used to prefer that over music, which, you know, most kids prefer to listen to music on the radio. 
And I used to listen to like the political debates and, you know, all that stuff. My parents always got a kick out of that. There's very few women that do talk radio. I think that's a big thing too. Mm. I, I did a couple of interviews recently and my producer said to me, you know, he said, do not take this the wrong way, but a man would have done that interview completely different than you. Like you brought something out in that interview that, um, that, you know, other hosts couldn't have. So I think that's, I, you try to use that to my, to my benefit. I try to use also the fact I'm a mom and a daughter and, you know, I've lost my father. So I use sort of those ex life experiences. I'm twice divorced. I'm, I'm also a stand up comedian. So I try to use basically, you know, my life's kind of foundation uh, to try and draw stuff out of other people. And, you know, I, I always, when I interview somebody and they sort of make a crack about themselves, um, I see that differently than maybe somebody else. Cause that's my kind of humor. I use self-deprecating humor. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, this dog barking right now is making <laughs> me sing. Like literally I'm losing my mind. She's never barked this much. <laughs> bark for like three minutes and then that's it. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, just kind of poking fun at ourselves or when someone does that in an interview, I, you know, I find my, my comedic side will come up. Um, but I can also go and swing the other way where, you know, somebody is, is, can be, you know, really empathetic and, and really just allow somebody an opportunity to speak about something that is so, uh, so difficult for them as well. It sounds like in all of these cases and probably most of the fundraising uh, work, or at least I hope that these people are sympathetic or you're sympathetic to them or they have a story that they want to tell that that we can empathize with but there must be circumstances where that's not true and 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 i know that you began uh well you didn't begin your life in politics but you entered into it very rapidly you just talked about liking <laughs> enjoying listening to political talk radio you were right in the thick of it in the mayor's uh, office tell us about yes. that I was chief of staff for the mayor. I worked for a city councilor as well. And I think that was one of the best life experiences I could have, like mm. having the opportunity. Um, Cause I think at the municipal level of politics, you're dealing with every, everybody's everyday issues. Mm -hmm. So it's everything from garbage collection to bylaw, <clears throat> you know, to what's happening down the street. So in terms of building infrastructure, so that was really great, laid a fantastic foundation for me, not only from an incredible network perspective that I've been able to, to have here in Ottawa, um, but it really gave me a great perspective in terms of human nature. Um, politics is, is very funny as we all know. And, um, so I think it, it really allowed me to, um, to take that experience into everything I do. Uh, you know, it gives me a great, great reward. Even when I think back to some of the projects, we'll be driving down the street and I'll say to my doctor, oh, I, I worked on that project. Right. So part of that is just, um, anything we can do <clears throat> within our own city and be able to, to sort of share that has been, has been a great reward for me for sure. Working on that must not always be easy. That people put pressure on people in politics at every level to get things done that they want done, and they can be sometimes difficult or unpleasant about it. How have you, how did you manage that at the time, and and what has that taught you that you then bring to your work today? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. I I remember taking things personally, <laughs> and you had to not right. You had to. Mm -hmm. Um, you had to really just 
um, yeah, you had to, you had to really understand who you could trust. And I think I, I definitely take that, um, with my everyday now in terms of, of really, you know, seeing whatever the other people's agendas are from a political perspective. Um, you know, there's still people I'm, I'm really good friends with to today. Um, but working respectively with one another, um, I saw how it was done well and quite frankly, how it wasn't done well. And I'd like to think that some of those lessons have been uh, carried on for me as I've continued through my career. And do you still maintain an interest in the political or are you able to explore that in your media work? For sure. And what's great is that when um, they require a host, whether that be Christmas time or summertime or whenever uh, the regular hosts for 1310 News take a vacation, I uh, am able to fill in. I've got a chance to do that for a couple of weeks just recently. And of course, we're talking about all things political south of the border to us, of course, what's happening in the United States. That's always a big topic for us Canadians as well. Um, but we're talking about all the, you know, there's different things happening here in Canada. We've had a big charity scandal here with the We Charity um, and our Prime Minister. So that's been really interesting. But being able to thread in my love of politics, uh, and in that case, just happened to be on the air the couple of weeks that the charity scandal broke here as well, kind of was an interesting uh, combination for me. Um, but uh, but yeah, I love, I still follow it um, and follow uh, follow politics uh, from a number of perspectives, not only, um, you know, what's happening in the United States, but also follow uh, what's happening uh, globally in terms of, of Australia and Europe and uh, and different countries like that to see what's happening on the world stage. Before you walk too far away from the prime minister's uh, controversy, could you talk a bit about that? I, I wanted to ask you, but it may, may be unfamiliar to many of the people listening. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So what happened here in, uh, I would say in April of this year is the prime minister and our finance minister at the time, Bill Morneau, came to the table with a plan working with We Charity. And of course, this is Mark and Craig Kielberger, who are young men, well, they're not as young anymore, but they certainly started a charity when they were young called the We Charity. Um, Me to We is part of that as well. And uh, people may be familiar with the fact they would hold these sort of concert-like um, uh, big events in, in different cities and young people would gather and they would get them all rawed, you know, rah-rahed about uh, volunteering, etc. My daughter attended four times, so I'm very familiar with those uh, different events. But basically what had happened was they had sole sourced a contract with the We Charity for $900 million, just shy of a billion, uh, sorry, just shy of a billion dollars. And the sole sourcing of that um, certainly didn't sit well with the opposition parties. And um, we've just actually this past week, so the week of August the, uh, I guess, August the 16th, uh, our finance minister has resigned over that issue. Um, so uh, he was found to have taken some trips uh, for We Charity and not paid the $40,000. So it's it certainly hit Canada very, very difficult, at a very difficult time to lose our finance minister. But any kind of uh, scandal like this, but particularly during a pandemic, when it comes to a volunteer organization, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, this $900 million contract to have students, uh, quote unquote, volunteer for some money, uh, was not, uh, not very well um, accepted by Canadians. And that that kind of political issue, when it occurs in the United States, it, it hasn't 
achieved that level of notoriety yet. I don't think we've had a scandal of quite that uh, scale, if you wish to describe it as a scandal, something that could rock an administration or um, cause the removal of a cabinet officer. Uh, I wonder if you have any observations about why that might be perceived differently. I know we haven't had something quite like that here, but we've had our share of, of issues in the States. Is there a difference in the perception about the relationship between government and charity, or maybe just the, the presence of charity as a whole in Canada? Yeah, it's embarrassing to say that this is the third time for this Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, to have some sort of ethical scandal. So we unfortunately were, you know, if you think about baseball, this is kind of three strikes you're out. The Prime Minister didn't remove himself. He removed uh, the Finance Minister. So, you know, from, from this perspective, this is a Prime Minister who has seen not only a scandal with charity and also a, a personal scandal, some travel that he took with Aga Khan, as well as another charity, or not, sorry, not another charity, a, a commercial or a, I should say a business corporate um, controversy as well. I think, you know, I think the pandemic just laid another layer onto that, where people are so nervous about financially what this is going to mean for quite frankly our our children's 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 children right i mean this is going to cost uh, a lot this pandemic so we know that it's going to be uh, many many generations uh, to come will be paying for this so to see a, a sole source contract like that canadians just didn't have the appetite for it and, and i know that those kinds of issues are obviously going to exist uh, not only in Canada, but in the United States and all around the world as we try and adjust to the incredible uh, expenditures that were made in order to address the pandemic and all the resulting financial issues. But I wonder if uh, if this will have the same kind of impact in each country when it comes to charity and philanthropy as a whole, uh, outside the um, uh, kind of political manifestations of that, just whether or not people give. So can you talk a bit about what you're seeing in terms of a giving uh, in Canada to charity and if that has been able to be uh, maintained or if you're seeing any kind of major shifts in giving? We, we certainly see a lot of charities that are suffering right now. We do see um, some doing better than they've ever done. So things like uh, shelters, things like food banks. Um, sort of, I always think about it as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, that bottom mm -hmm. rung of needs, whether it be food, shelter, shelter and clothing, always seem to get attentions, uh, attention, I should say, when there's an emergency. So I think from that perspective, um, those in some cases have done better. I find ones that deal with maybe youth leadership or the arts um, have, have done uh, more poorly. I think our hospitals, I think that whole wave of, of really, you know, respecting our, our medical professionals during this time benefited many um, health organizations and, and institutions. Um, but certainly from the perspective of, um, you know, of the of charity as a whole, it's uh, determined this was early in the game. So I don't know if this number is still relevant, but they were they were saying they, they expected to see about a 15 billion dollar loss here in Canada. One of the things I was really disappointed about in terms of the prime minister, one of the actions that was being called upon uh, for uh, Canadians during this pandemic was to ask uh, Canadians uh, to give, and it would be matched by the government. We saw early uh, on, we saw a number of um, monies flow to organizations like food banks, 
Limited, um, Food Banks Canada, I should say, uh, Kids Help Phone, um, Salvation Army, etc. But I really thought it was a missed opportunity for the Prime Minister not to do a matching gift program. And mm. that way, um, the giving would mirror where uh, Canadians were also giving. It's a it's a really interesting point because we haven't done anything like that in the states either. But there have been other programs, uh, and their effectiveness has been debated. But in terms of giving as a whole, I think much of this the pressure is on the organizations themselves. So, have your clients and other organizations you know have they stepped up and done more, or are they holding back when it comes to fundraising? Well, I'll tell you, in the early days, March, April, and May, many of them sort of, you know, put the brakes on, and I thought it was a really bad error. A number of my clients continued going, which was great, but, you know, sort of colleagues as a whole, many were very nervous um, because of the CERB, et cetera. But, you know, there's a lot of Canadians, or a lot of people, I should say, uh, as much as people have suffered, there's a lot of people that have done actually really well during this time in terms of they've kept their job, they aren't traveling, they aren't doing some of those things, so they have more disposable income. So the argument I would make with people is that they, you know, to, to still ask and to still um, appeal to their donors and, and just maybe in a different way, but definitely connect with them. The pressure that organizations are under right now to to um, survive and to perform the work they do is is tremendous. Sure. You've talked a lot about mental health in your work. What kind of impact do you think this is having on the organizations and their staffs and their boards as they try to make their way through this? I got to tell you, I don't think I've met uh, a nonprofit leader in the last five months that hasn't slept a little and um, grieved more. I think this has been very challenging on this sector. I think we're going to lose a lot of people in the sector because of it. Um, A lot of my friends have had to take 20% pay cuts. Um, They've had to uh, work harder than they've ever worked um, with boards that, you know, sort of were distracted. Um, Some boards stepped up, some didn't. Um, I, I think we're going to be feeling the effects of this for a very long time on this sector. How about you and your family? How are you making your way through this? Well, you know, it's been interesting because, of course, you're hearing from our puppy. She seems quite happy. Um, but uh, but my daughter, you know, she's 12, so she's managed quite well. There's been days, of course, she misses her friends and misses the way our life uh, was. Um, but certainly, um, she's done well in school. So all that's good. She's going to be heading back to school, uh, on September the 8th. So that's been, um, uh, positive for her. Uh, I've been working like crazy, probably more than I should have. Um, so in retrospect, you know, I would have maybe not worked as much, but, uh, I had the opportunity to host a daily show for about 90 days, uh, mm-hmm. about COVID. So I was basically out of those 90 days, I worked about 84 days. Um, so I worked very, very hard doing that show, plus keeping up with my fundraising clients, plus keeping up with my donor analytical company. So it was a very, and is still a very, very busy time, but I'm just so grateful to, to be working and to be able to move the needle forward for so many of my organizations. I know that sometimes if there's a lot that I have to do, it means that I don't have to think about the other things. Uh-huh, Do you yes. find yourself in that position too, if you've been yeah. doing show every day? Absolutely. I think I said that to somebody recently that, 
you know, I just was feeling a bit blue and they said, well, you're, I think you're going through what we all went through in March and April, but you didn't have time. And I was like, "Hmm, that's very astute. Yes. So yeah, I agree. I wanted to ask you a bit about your work on the analytical side. Uh, you you have a company Griffin that does yeah. data analytics, and and I wanted to know where that passion came from, and if that that work is enabling you to look at at uh, at the field in different ways, especially at a time like this. It has been an incredible, incredible journey with Griffin. I was someone that was petrified of analytics, petrified of the numbers all of that. And this was an opportunity that came to me about 13 years ago, uh, working with um, my executive director uh, at the Ottawa Mission at the time, Laird Eddy. He's the smart one behind uh, Griffin. And uh, he really came to me and said, listen, like, this is what we're doing for our organization. Um, You know, do you think we could do this and take this to market? And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And yeah, I think so. And so I started to learn about it, started to figure out how to package this. Um, he he wrote all of the back end side of it. So he, we like to think about it as he's behind the computer and I'm in front of the people. So, um, so it's been really great uh, to be able to work with him uh, on this particular project. So we're coming on to our 13th year. We work with, um, you know, nonprofits the size of you know, a thousand donors. And we also work with people that have got 10 million records. So it's really been amazing to see um, how donors speak to us through the data. I think there's a lot to say about donors who give to us once, but unless you kind of know what your second gift conversion is, you don't understand sort of what those donors might be saying or the trends that are happening. So we run an analytical report. We turn it around in about a week and run that for um, for nonprofits. We have a number of people that just come back year after year. But during this particular time, I didn't know. Like on March 16th, I remember saying to Laird, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with this with this company. I don't know if people are going to continue to order. We have never been busier, Jay. It has been crazy because so many people want to know not only what their benchmark was prior to 2020. So a lot of people will have us run the data up until the end of December 2019, but they want to then find out what their 2020 looked like. So it's been really interesting to work with people. Sometimes I'm sharing really heartbreaking numbers and sometimes, you know, everybody's virtually high-fiving each other. So it's really an interesting time to run data. I've ran it for uh, for well, South Africa, I've worked for Ireland, for Australia, for all over Canada, all over the U.S. So it's been interesting to see globally what that looks like. And every time I open up a fresh report, it's it's uh, it's like Christmas morning for me. I love walking through that data with people. And you know, when I get to back to our sort of beginning of our conversation, which was about storytelling, you know, telling the the story behind that data is such an interesting piece for me. Because that, like I said, that's how donors talk to us is is through the data. They say a lot if they're only giving to your special events, through your special events. They're just saying a lot to you as monthly donors. They're saying a lot when they reactivate. So, you know, let's find out what they're saying and then become very targeted and segmented in the way that we speak back to them. I always wonder about this with data because it's it can be a reflection of where we are or where we're 
where we've been or where we're going, but hopefully it's a little bit of all three. Oh, and yeah. when when you're thinking about it right now, are you beginning to see through the fog of the moment about where maybe some of the opportunities might reside as we make our way through this? Your daughter goes back to school, hopefully uh, work maybe isn't returned to a normal, but maybe a better situation post pandemic. Are there some things that you're seeing emerge as trends both within Canada and globally among your clients that it's evident in the data? Yeah, one of the big things is loyal donors are loyal donors. And, you know, uh, they donors will stick with you if you continue to ask them. Where we're seeing, you know, oh, we decided not to do the April mailing or we decided not to do the, the you know, the May appeal. And, you know, we see that in the data. You know, I always say to people, because we used to get complaints all the time. When I worked at a homeless shelter, people would say, oh, you send out too many appeals. And I used to say sort of tongue in cheek uh, to them back because I wanted to make sure they knew, like, did you wake up this morning and without us prompting, would you have, would you have thought about us today? And they'd be like, okay, yeah, good point. I said, well, that's why I have to do it because I can either look towards you as a donor or I can look back at the 240 men that are going to stay at the shelter, the 1,250 people that are going to eat here, and tell them I didn't try hard enough today. And that always resonated with people that were complaining. Sometimes they try to give me a gift, <laughs> which I always thought was really funny. Oh, let me give you another hundred bucks or whatever. Um, but it was very much, uh, you know, an opportunity to sort of, you know, look at the data, see what people are saying right now, and more than ever, um, I'm seeing. You know, people have maybe a hundred thousand people in their database. They might only have twenty thousand of them giving, but they're loyal. So, as fundraisers, we need to work with that twenty percent and make sure we're doing everything we can to meet the, those donors' needs at the same time as meeting the needs of our organization. That's an important conversation to have too, because perhaps it's an argument over semantics, but I've seen. Uh, a debate just recently about the term donor centric mm -hmm. for a long time, people were embracing it. Like it, you know, they were stuck to it with, with molasses. And now some people are running away from it saying we need to focus on the community. Are those right. two things really opposing notions? I don't think so because donors are part of the community. I think, I think when we find something that resonates with the community, but we're also doing good work, I think that's the sweet spot. Um, so I'm not I'm not on that in sort of against donor centric term team at all. I, I think it's an important way to to make sure we every time we make the the donor the hero of the story, and we're doing good work in the community, that's where we intersect. That that's the sweet spot. So I don't think that that's a problem at all. Right. I gotta ask you about comedy because you <laughs> said you worked. As a stand-up comic, so that's you know one of your six or seven major major <laughs> activities in life. How did that start, and what is it that you are able to laugh about most right uh, now? Oh heavens to Betsy! Did you know that about me? Did you know that, Jay? No. Oh, you didn't? Oh, that's fun. Okay. So basically, I've always wanted to try it. I have always wanted to get into it. A couple of years ago, I started doing it. And then I took a comedy class. And part of it for me, um, I'm twice divorced. And most of my comedy, quite honestly, is about being divorced, um, is poking fun at, you know, kind of, I always joke that I collect husbands and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So 
part of it was just, I think, a way of coping with that. Um, but also, you know, I speak, I do a lot of self-deprecating humor, but I did something a number, well, I guess it was last Christmas. It's feeling a lot longer ago, but it was just last Christmas where our local association of fundraising, our AFP chapter, as well as a local chapter that looks after plan giving held their Christmas party. And I was the entertainment, if you can believe it. And I did comedy that was called, um, you know, you're a fundraiser when. Um, so I had on the books for 2020 to do fundraising comedy for a number of conferences, um, and luncheons and professional development, et cetera. And unfortunately they all got canceled, but, um, mostly, uh, yeah, mostly it was a way of me trying to improve my keynote speaking. That's kind of a big way I make my living as well. Um, so yeah, so it was just kind of a combination of that, but, um, you know, I don't make a lot of money with comedy, but every dollar I make seems to just be a bit sweeter. Well, I'm imagining that a time like this, if you're a person who's fearless enough to stand on stage and make jokes about, you know, uh, past marriages and about the fundraising field, yeah. that it must be especially challenging to be stuck at home. Are you finding ways to get out and to socialize or are you in lockdown? I I was, well, definitely uh, in the early days because I was, you know, I was in studio at the radio station. We all had to be so careful that I was only at home or I was at the radio station for probably the first three months. Um, I was getting, picking up groceries, like they were loading in the back of my, my SUV and stuff. So it was very limited during that time. I was doing so many, just like all of us doing so many Zoom meetings, but I do miss being in front of an audience. I miss, I miss that. I was the, the closing plenary speaker for our sort of our national conference here in Canada, our AFP Toronto chapter holds a big conference Congress every year. So I miss those opportunities. I was supposed to be in New Zealand as one of the keynote speakers for the fundraising Institute of New Zealand uh, with the beautiful and amazing Rachel Muir. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities like that have been missed, but I like to think about the fact that they're going to happen someday. It's just not going to be 2020. So what do you think it looks like next for you, especially mm. when we roll out of this pandemic, whenever that happens? I think I'm going to focus more on the analytics, to be honest, uh, a little bit less. I'm, I've actually turned down a few contracts for, for fundraising strategy. Um, I think if anything that I've learned during this is I need to slow down a bit. I, I'm, I'm a little on the tired side in terms of just um, not taking care of myself as best I could. So Part of that, you know, I'm very excited to share with you. I just bought an Apple Watch and mostly because I want to use a lot of the features on it to, to help with my health. So from a health perspective, <clears throat> I want to become a little bit healthier. I'm going to be 50 in January and it's an opportunity for me to sort of take a good long look at what I want to do. I'm in the middle of writing a book as well. Um, and I'm also uh, in the middle of creating some online content. There's going to be 20 24 modules in the end um, that I'll be working through with clients. So I'm trying to, to simplify a bit um, and try and check a few of those things off the old bucket list for sure. Yeah. And what about uh, for your family? Can, what do you imagine it will look like for them, uh, let's say, as you enter 2021? Yeah, it's really going to be interesting. My daughter will have been turning through, well, she turns 13 in December. So um, you know, really, uh, I think the other thing too, this pandemic has taught me is that 
you know, she said to me a couple of times, oh, well, you know, that happened, you were traveling when that happened or, and those things have kind of struck me because I, I like to think that I'm a pretty hands-on mom, but um, I think, you know, as much as we have to watch our kids when they're babies and toddlers, um, and I think in some ways when they're little like that, we think, oh, I can't wait till, you know, there's a day when they can be left alone. But I think in many ways, um, she needs me more now than she ever has. So, um, or just to a different degree. So, uh, we've agreed we're best friends for life. So, um, I just need to, uh, spend more time with her, I think. And I think my traveling, I, I do take her probably about 50% of the time, but I'll be um, pulling back a lot on that even when the world resumes. Yeah. As long as Beasley allows it. <laughs> yes. Let's not, oh, she's quiet now, which I'm so happy about. Um, but yes, <laughs> Beasley, uh, I think Beasley was another reason that uh, we know we're going to be spending a little bit more time at home. And, um, you know, as maybe I think one, I think I did a 19 day tour, five cities. I don't think you'll see me do that again. I think I'll maybe pick two cities uh, and maybe visit two and not do the five. So that kind of stuff that I used to do, I think is, is, is we'll just call that um, pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. Well, we'll look forward to seeing you post-pandemic. And for now, thank you so much for sharing a bit about uh, about your life in the middle of all this and everything you're doing to make the uh, the work that's done by so many nonprofits there and everywhere more successful. Thank you, Sam. Been my honor, and I look forward to seeing you on a on a conference floor sometime soon. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by Donor Search, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.